Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Today on the docket, I'd like to present a two-parter from the podcast Criminal called 48 Hours about a horrific kidnapping ordeal made so much worse by the police. This story is astounding. And if you want to take your listening experience to the next level, go to the truecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. I've got photos of the key players in this case, the kidnapped victim, her boyfriend, the kidnapper, and the lead detective. And of course, the beloved host of the criminal podcast, Phoebe Judge. Criminal is my go-to for unwind true crime. You're always guaranteed an interesting story delivered with a soothing tone from the iconic Phoebe Judge. Her voice puts you into a true crime trance, lulling you into the story with her tagline, I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Criminal. When she says that line, dude, I swear I picture myself as a grown adult in those cozy onesie pajamas, sucking my thumb and being held by Phoebe in a rocking chair. And yes, with such a broad topic like criminal, there is a range in stories and mood from the deeply sad and tragic to the more light and whimsical. But regardless of the topic, I always still get the rocking chair effect. Until the episode 48 Hours dropped back in June of 2021. Phoebe changed the game with this one. She took her signature bedtime story voice to completely disarm you. You're in a state of deep relaxation. Then when you finally flutter your eyes open, you realize Phoebe moved her rocking chair to the edge of a skyscraper. And then she left you on this unnerving cliffhanger all week before airing part two. I don't think I've ever been so anxious for a podcast episode to drop in my life. This case was unbelievable to begin with. 
but the way it unfolded, expertly delivered on Criminal, was outstanding. Come through, Phoebe! So, let's get into it. Our story begins in 2013 on Mare Island in Vallejo, California. And things kind of start off like an episode of that fake SNL soap opera, The Californians, with some relationship drama. A guy named Aaron Quinn recently broke up with his hot blonde fiance because she had cheated on him. So he told her to take the Curtola Parkway to the I-780 and skip all the exits and never come back into my life, okay? It was a devastating time for Aaron. He was ready to share his whole life with his ex-fiance. They had lived together. She had only just recently moved her stuff out. So he's still in his feelings about the whole sitch. And then he meets another hot blonde named Denise Huskins at his workplace, Kaiser Hospital. Denise was originally from Huntington Beach and had relocated to Vallejo to do her PT residency at Kaiser, where Aaron was a physical therapist as well. They started out as friendly, flirty co-workers. Then they started hanging out outside of work, and Aaron and Denise quickly fell hard for each other. But again, it wasn't the best timing for Aaron. He hadn't fully recovered from his previous relationship. So seven months after the new couple started dating, Denise found out that her boyfriend Aaron was still messaging his ex-fiance. So more Californian drama. Denise isn't sure if she should stay with Aaron or take the Sonoma Boulevard to the Redwood Parkway and drive the 180 out of Aaron's life. At this point, it's June of 2014. Denise decides to meet with Aaron at his house and have a real hard conversation about their relationship. They talk long into the night. Things get heated. Emotions flare. But in the end, they decide to stay together. Their love for each other was strong enough to overcome these challenges. Emotionally exhausted, the two fall asleep around midnight. Then, at about 3 a.m., Denise and Aaron are startled awake by two men. A voice calls out, This is a robbery! Denise and Aaron have spotlights aimed in their faces and red laser dots pointed at their body, the kind that look like they're coming from the sight of a gun. Then the voice commands, Aaron, lie face down! The fact that these men knew Aaron's name made the ordeal even more terrifying. It was clear this wasn't just a random crime of opportunity. These were professionals with a thought-out plan and a precise target. Denise is ordered to restrain Aaron's hands and feet with zip ties, and then she was forced into a closet and bound with zip ties as well. She can't see the men's faces in the dark, but she can see two bodies from the waist down wearing all black. But soon her eyes were covered with blacked-out swim goggles. Aaron was also forced to wear the blacked-out goggles and thrown into the closet next to Denise. Then the men put headphones over their ears. Aaron describes a soft wind chime music, the kind that's supposed to be soothing, but it's all the more disorienting and terrifying because of this situation. Kind of like Phoebe Judge's voice in this episode of Criminal. So you have this horror meditation music playing in the background, and then an auto-tuned voice gives instructions. Be calm. This is not your fault. If you comply with our demands, everything will be okay. They're then instructed to take an oral sedative and threaten that if they didn't take it orally, it would be forced injected into them. 
and Denise starts to calm down a little. She figures that they're going to be knocked out while Aaron's money and valuables are taken away, and then everything will be fine. But then why go through all of this trouble just for Aaron? He does okay, but he's not exactly rolling in the dough. So why is Aaron Quinn being targeted? The voice starts asking Aaron and Denise personal and financial questions. Then the men leave the room. Denise and Aaron do their best to stay calm, hoping this will all be over soon. Then the voice comes back into the room and says, We have a problem. This wasn't meant for you. This was meant for The voice names Aaron's ex-fiance, and then he asks if Denise and Aaron's ex look alike. Aaron's stomach drops. Yes, they do. They're both fit blondes with a similar look. I realize it's a bad time to pile on Aaron. He's clearly going through enough as it is. But I just want to take a moment and encourage everyone out there to expand their horizons. There's nothing wrong with being attracted to tall, hot blondes. I'm just saying, though, that short Italian girls with brown, curly, sometimes frizzy hair, depending on the humidity, are pretty fly too, okay? And not only are you limiting yourself and potentially missing out on some great matches when you only date a specific type, You might also encounter these sorts of awkward mix-ups with people getting your current partner confused with your ex. Anyways, so the robbers don't know what to do with Aaron and Denise at this point. After getting the bad intel, they need to revise their plan. They leave the room for at least 20 minutes. I'm sure it felt like a lifetime for Aaron and Denise. Then they return with a new set of instructions. We're taking Denise. If Aaron meets all of our demands in the next 48 hours, she will be released safely. If not, Denise will be killed. Yeah, so Denise is put into the trunk of Aaron's car and driven away. Aaron is left alone, a prisoner in his own home. The robber kidnappers took his laptop too, but he's left with his phone and Denise's phone. He's instructed to send a message from Denise's cell to her workplace, notifying them that she won't be in for her next few shifts due to a family emergency. Aaron will be receiving messages from the kidnappers on his own phone, but they installed a tracking software to monitor all of his activity. So if Aaron tries to call for help, they're gonna know. There are also cameras placed around the house watching Aaron 24-7. At the time of Denise's kidnapping, Aaron had about 20 grand in his bank account, but he can't withdraw the full amount without raising suspicion. So he's instructed to take out $8,500 on day one, then another $8,500 on day two. Once completed, he'll be given the checkpoint to meet the kidnappers in exchange for Denise's safe return. Even though Denise was given a sedative and riding in a dark trunk of a car, she was still on high alert. Her body flooded with adrenaline. She does her best to remember every detail, trying to memorize every turn, to mentally keep track of time. About 30 minutes goes by and then the car stops. Aaron's trunk door opens. She's taken out and put into the trunk of another car. But this time her hands are cut free to make the ride more comfortable because she's told they have a long, long way to go. Denise is able to calm down a little and she starts to process everything. Who the hell are these people? What was their goal in the first place? And what's their end game now? 
her main handler that she calls the voice, has been oddly polite with her every step of the way, at least considering the circumstances. He compliments her on doing a good job while she's tying up her boyfriend Aaron. Then at one point, when he's questioning her on the couch, he asks Denise if she's comfortable. She replies that she's cold. He fetches her a blanket and makes this revealing comment like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize how cold it was because we're both wearing wetsuits. Her kidnapper also allowed her privacy to use the restroom before loading her into the trunk of the car. Why was he being so nice? Was it because of the mix-up? No, this must be part of their larger plan. I mean, the soothing music was already pre-recorded. And the wetsuits, they were another example of how pro these guys were. Wearing these wetsuits meant that they were less likely to leave any trace of hair or DNA behind. Plus, it gave them more options for escape routes via waterways if things went bad. These guys knew exactly what they were doing. Her being conditioned to feel at ease was all part of the plan. The hours go by for Denise, riding in the trunk of a car. Eventually, the sedative kicks in and she passes out. She wakes up to the feeling of the car slowing down and then coming to a stop. The trunk pops open and the voice says, We're here. Still blindfolded, Denise is carried into a house and instructed to shower. Then she's led into a room with a bed and told, This is where you'll be staying. She's given another sedative, then passes out on the bed. Meanwhile, Aaron was alone in his home. He manages to get the goggles off his face and sees the clock says 5 a.m. He passes out from the sedative and then wakes up around 11.30 a.m. He gets a message from the kidnappers with his first set of instructions. They are already deviating from the original plan, changing the time of the drop-off exchange. Aaron is worried things are going to go bad and they might just kill them both. But he doesn't know what to do. If he calls 911, the kidnappers might murder Denise on the spot. So Aaron comes up with a clever plan to call his brother, who just so happens to be an FBI special agent. If the kidnappers got wise to the phone call, he could just say, hey, my brother was originally supposed to come over today, and I was just calling him to say I had to cancel our plans. Aaron's brother answers and urges him to call 911 immediately. They need full force law enforcement on this ASAP. He assures Aaron not to be afraid. The police will know exactly what to do and how to handle the negotiations to get Denise back safely. So Aaron makes the hardest call he's ever had to make in his life. He calls 911 to the Vallejo Police Department, but this decision turned out to be devastating. But before we go there, let's chat a little bit about Vallejo. This is one of the most ethically and racially diverse cities in the country, just across the North Bay from San Francisco. Vallejo was a safe haven for gays and lesbians as far back as the 1940s. Nowadays, there's definitely a wealth gap, but the average annual income is currently resting at just over 100 grand, much higher than the national average. However, they have one of the highest crime rates when compared to similar cities of its size around the U.S. At the time of Denise's kidnapping, Vallejo citizens had a 1 in 23 chance of being a victim to a violent or property crime. But again, that would likely depend on what part of Vallejo you resided in. 
Luckily for Aaron Quinn, he was from Mare Island, the more affluent side of the tracks. So he should expect to get VIP treatment from the Vallejo PD, right? Right? Aaron makes his 911 call to officers around 2 p.m. This is about 11 hours since the break-in and like 9 hours since Denise has been kidnapped. Two officers arrive to the house immediately. Aaron tells them he's been drugged and he's still disoriented, but does his best to relay exactly what happened. The officers are acting more chill than Aaron was expecting. They don't seem to have this sense of urgency. And they're asking a lot of weird, irrelevant questions. One officer remarks at a box of empty beer bottles, asking Aaron if he drank all those beers. Aaron responds, yeah, but not all at once. He's just waiting for the container to get full before he recycles his bottles. What does this have to do with Denise's kidnapping? Eventually, he's asked to come down to the station and give his statement. Aaron has a general sense of what's going on. They have to rule him out first. Based on his car missing and the delayed call to 911, he could see how they might think this is a domestic murder. But he knows he has the messages on his phone to prove his innocence. And he immediately hands his phone over to the cops, then complies with all of their questioning, hoping they can quickly eliminate him as a suspect and move on to the real investigation. They strip Aaron down, photograph him naked, give him some prison-issued clothing to wear. They collect his DNA and even give him a polygraph test. He obeys every step of the way. Then Aaron's left alone for hours in an interrogation room cold, alone, and panic-stricken, knowing that Denise is still missing and time keeps ticking away. Then Detective Matt Mustard walks in. Meanwhile, Denise is locked away in a room in an unknown location. Still blindfolded, she's startled awake when her main handler walks in. Again, he's speaking in this kind manner to her, almost like he's trying to build rapport even disclosing details of his organization, saying things like, We are a black market startup made of ex-military. Our mission is to collect debts through whatever means necessary. Again, sorry for the mix-up. You were never meant to be a part of this. He keeps leaving the room for long periods of time, then coming back in. Now we're at one of the most disturbing parts of the story. Fast forward a few minutes to avoid any of the details. Otherwise, here's what happened. After leaving the room for a while, the kidnapper comes back in and tells Denise, We have a problem. He tells her that because she's innocent, they need collateral on her to ensure that she won't go to the authorities. So he's going to have sex with her and record it on video. And if she discloses any info about the ordeal to the police, he's going to put the video up on the internet. Not only is this plan traumatic and horrifying to Denise, it also makes zero sense to her. The whole thing is clearly going to look like a rape because that's what it is. She doesn't fight back out of fear he will kill her and instead dissociates from her body until this horrible experience is over. And I'm going to time jump in the story because I just want to get this whole part over with. The next day, he tells Denise there was a problem with the first video that it didn't look convincing enough like a consensual sex tape, probably because it was a rape and she still had her blacked out swim goggles on. So this time he's going to tape her eyes shut and he wants her to act like she's into it. It's just awful. Denise performs to save her life until this monster is satisfied. 
And that's all the details I'm going to say here about her sexual assaults. While all of this is happening, Aaron Quinn is still in an interrogation room, now being interviewed by Detective Matt Mustard and polygraph administrator Peter French. Detective French delivers the news to Aaron that he failed the polygraph miserably. Detective Mustard insists that they all know he killed Denise and it's time for Aaron to fess up and lead the authorities to her body. Aaron asks for his brother. They say he's not there, when in actuality, his brother is outside the room asking to see Aaron. The cops told him that Aaron was experiencing a schizophrenic episode. The Matt Mustard interrogation goes on for a good hour. Finally, Aaron is like, what evidence do you guys have that a crime even took place? The detectives were quiet. Then Aaron asked for a lawyer. His attorney, Dan Russo, picks up the phone and instructs his client to stop talking. The interrogation is over, but Denise is still missing. After complying with her kidnapper, Denise is given permission to remove her goggles when he's not in the room. She's allowed to shower, and the kidnapper gets her pizza and wine. And then he comes in and says that they've lost contact with Aaron. Most likely, he had gone to the authorities, so they need to make a proof-of-life video. The video consists of Denise having to say her name, detail a current event from that day, and disclose the first concert she went to. And now we get to the part of the story I'd like to call the Vallejo Police Department can't admit that they are wrong in the face of a mounting pile of evidence. First, the proof of life video gets sent to the authorities. They even send in an FBI hostage negotiator and play it for Aaron. But they still accuse him of being in on all of this. When Aaron insists that he can show them evidence on his phone, that the kidnapper's been trying to reach him the whole time he was in custody, the police claim that no text messages were coming in. But finally, when his lawyer is present, Aaron gets his phone back. He immediately notices someone put his phone in airplane mode while he was in custody. So Aaron switches his phone back online, and he's flooded with a barrage of text messages, phone calls, and voicemails that have been sent over the past 24 hours. Dude, Aaron is fuming. He's never been more angry in his life all this time. They had incoming proof they could have tracked the calls and saved Denise. But instead, the police chose to ignore it. Not only did they ignore it at the time, In the wake of this new cell phone evidence on Aaron's phone, instead of following up on a new lead, the Vallejo PD accused Aaron of masterminding all of these messages ahead of time. I know, I would have started throwing things, man, turned into a straight-up Tasmanian devil spitting and pulling my hair out. What a living nightmare. None of the detectives believed Aaron, no matter what evidence they were presented with. Denise was still missing, and the clock is about to run out. From the moment Denise was taken, the main kidnapper always insisted he was going to release her in 48 hours. But since then, nothing seemed to go as planned. He never got the money. All contact with Aaron stopped. Why on earth would he release her? It became clear to Denise this monster was going to kill her, and she needed to prepare herself for the fight of her life. If he tried to give her another sedative, she was going to find a way not to take it, and also track down some sort of weapon that she could use against him. The kidnapper told Denise to get a little rest because they're going to leave at 2 a.m. the next morning. 2 a.m. came, 
It was still pitch black outside. Denise has her eyes taped closed and sunglasses put over her face. Then she's put into the front seat of a car. Maybe this was a good sign. Maybe the kidnapper was actually going to do what he said and release her. Or maybe he was just trying to keep her calm while he took her to a spot to kill her and dispose of her body. After a few hours, the car stops. This is it, she thinks. The man leads her out of the car. She can't see where she's going. The path feels soft beneath her as she's walking. Denise is overwhelmed with the feeling she's marching to her death. Any second, a gun is about to go off and it'll all be over. But then she hears a door open. Denise realizes they are at a rest stop and the kidnapper has led her to a bathroom. She calms down. The kidnapper walks her back to the car, then keeps driving. Eventually, he stops the car and says, We're here. But before he releases Denise, he tells her that she cannot tell the authorities that she was raped or that the men who kidnapped her were former military. If she did this, the kidnapper threatened to harm her family. And with that last warning, Denise was finally free. She takes off her glasses and sees that she's in Huntington Beach, walking distance away from her mother's house. She races down the street and pounds on the door, but nobody answers. Her family are hours away in Vallejo with Aaron. So she goes to the neighbor's house, a complete stranger. They let her in and she tells them, I'm Denise Huskins and I've been kidnapped. The authorities arrive immediately and get her statement, but it soon becomes clear they don't believe Denise either. Ugh, I know. And this is the part where criminal originally stopped and you were left on a cliffhanger for a week. Even though I could have easily Googled it and put an end to the anxiety, I had to find out what happened from Phoebe Judge. But I was also peeved at her for putting me through this agonizing wait. So for a week, back in June 2021, my usual stable relationship status with Phoebe from the criminal podcast changed to, it's complicated. Then part two dropped. Once Denise was found, it turned into a media frenzy. Based on the info they were receiving from the Vallejo PD, news was accusing Aaron and Denise of orchestrating a Gone Girl-style hoax. I've never read the book or saw the Gone Girl movie, and neither did Denise Huskins. But I gather the basic plot was a woman is in a toxic relationship, and then to get back at her man, she fakes her own death and pins the murder on him. So yeah, nothing to do with Denise's case. The only thing tangentially related to this was that the way I feel about the Vallejo PD resembles Ben Affleck's exasperated face. And it all gets so much worse when Detective Matt Mustard gives a press conference chastising the deplorable, attention-seeking Aaron and Denise. How dare they soak up valuable resources at taxpayers' expense? Detective Mustard was even contemplating bringing them up on charges for false reporting. So yeah, public opinion towards Aaron and Denise was not good. Aaron was having a hard time getting placement for his job. Denise was let go from hers. They had to pay over a hundred grand in attorney's fees, even though they were never formally charged with a crime. The only people supporting them were close family members and a handful of friends. Otherwise, the whole world was against them. 
But then the kidnapper made contact with the police. He said this was not a hoax. Denise and Aaron were victims, and he gave insider details about the crime that were not known to the public. So finally, the Vallejo PD had a change of heart. Right? Right? (laughs) Nope. They doubled down, saying this too was a hoax. It became a joke in the media, like, yeah, right, now the kidnapper was coming to their defense? Give me a break. This all sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? Like, how on earth could a police department be this reckless? But it was business as usual, just another hole in the donut for the Vallejo PD. Remember when I said Vallejo had a fairly high crime rate? Perhaps that's because at the time of Denise Huskins' kidnapping, the Vallejo PD had one of the highest rates of police shootings per capita. There was even a well-known rumor that cops would bend down one of the points on their star badges if they killed someone in the line of duty. Like it was something to celebrate, literally wearing it like a badge of honor. And also, the same year that Detective Matt Mustard made his splashy press conferences accusing Denise and Aaron of orchestrating a Gone Girl hoax, he also won the Officer of the Year Award. I haven't been this infuriated at a mustard since I made that perfect ham and Swiss sandwich, pulled out my squeeze bottle of Ingelhofer Dijon, and proceeded to accidentally douse my beautiful sandwich with a gallon of disgusting yellow-brown water before any paste emerged. No! Why, God? Why? Anyway, let's talk about a detective who is actually deserving of Officer of the Year, Sergeant Misty Caruso. She gets a 911 call after a man broke into a home in Dublin, California. The intruder was wearing a mask and woke an elderly couple up while they were asleep in bed, saying, This is a robbery. He tried to restrain them with zip ties, but the old man was scrappy and able to fight the dude. So the intruder panics and takes off, but accidentally leaves behind his cell phone. Yeah, so Detective Caruso tracks down the cell phone owner to an elderly lady who said it belonged to her son, Matthew Muller, saying he was currently residing in the family's vacation home on Lake Tahoe. They also learned that Matt was ex-military and a Harvard-educated lawyer. He was even married at one point, but then started suffering from mental health problems, including PTSD and bipolar disorder. Matt was fired from his job and disbarred after stealing documents. His life had been in a tailspin ever since. So Detective Misty Caruso and her team go to the house and surprise Matt by breaking down the door, arresting him, and searching his house and car. A car they later learned was stolen. They find multiple license plates, a key maker, and a laptop they later learned belonged to Aaron Quinn inside Muller's house. But Caruso finds the most disturbing evidence inside the car. She discovered toy guns painted black to look like real guns with laser pointers attached to them. Also, a male blow-up doll dressed in black with wires attached, presumably to prop it up, plus zip ties, duct tape, and a pair of blacked-out swim goggles with long blonde strands stuck to the sides. Detective Caruso tracked down the owner of the stolen car who happened to live on Mare Island in Vallejo. He claimed he had reported it missing to the local authorities right around the same time that woman went missing. 
but they didn't seem to make any connection, and they also didn't seem to care about the multiple calls they had received leading up to the Denise Huskins kidnapping about a man peeking into windows, sometimes even using a ladder to get a better view. Detective Misty Caruso contacts the Vallejo PD and says, Hey, I think I found a man connected to your kidnapping case. And they responded with, No, that was totally a hoax and that case is closed. Now, if you'll excuse us, we've got some badge bending to do. So Detective Caruso calls the FBI instead, and they finally put the pieces together. Matt Muller is charged with Denise's kidnapping. Denise and Aaron are exonerated. But oh my God, imagine if this guy never broke into that house and got beat up by that old man and his case would have never been assigned to an awesome cop like Misty Caruso. Denise and Aaron would have continued to have their reputations sullied. Any Google search would have forever linked them to the Gone Girl hoax. And again, this happened to a well-educated, affluent resident of Vallejo. Imagine if this had happened to a resident from the lower class with far less resources. To be fair, the Vallejo PD was right to suspect Aaron at the beginning, but they had ample evidence to rule him out and quickly change gears to track down the actual kidnapper, Matt Muller, maybe even before Denise was assaulted. But they didn't. And it's a miracle that this case was ever solved. Matt Muller pled guilty to all charges and was sentenced to 40 years. Denise and Aaron sued the Vallejo PD for $2.5 million, and they stayed together, eventually getting married and giving birth to a little girl in 2020. I was frankly astonished, but so happy to hear that they were able to heal from all of this and find happiness together. Denise is now a certified victim's advocate, and the two co-authored a book together called Victim F, From Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors. There's also a documentary coming out in the near future on Netflix about this case, but I still recommend the podcast Criminals Reporting above all others. Because if Aaron and Denise can overcome all of this harrowing trauma and pain, find their joy together... I can certainly overcome my feelings of betrayal towards Phoebe Judge for switching up the cozy vibe of her storytelling and instead making me feel like I was being dangled over a volcano. So now my relationship status with the show Criminal is back to completely infatuated. And whatever, maybe that sounds like I'm an obsessed fangirl. Say what you want. Only Phoebe can judge me. Yeah, that was the kidnapping case of Denise Huskins. I'm really looking forward to the documentary. I still am dying to know if Aaron's ex-fiance was the original target and if there were multiple people acting together or if Matt Muller acted alone with a blow-up doll. Hopefully we can get some more answers in this case, but we know for sure the Vallejo PD ain't solving anything. Until then, tell me your thoughts about all of it. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed. Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. 
So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start the ranking, I got to tell you, I'm in a little bit of a podcast rut right now. A lot of shows are in between seasons. I'm currently finishing up Million Dollar Lover from the BBC. It's one of those shows that makes excellent background noise while you're doing chores. Not exactly a rave review, but it is a show I'm still listening to. So for the ranking, I've got two shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. And one that hasn't come out yet, but I'm excited about. So, without further ado, I present to you this week's amended format podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have White Devil. Here's a summary from the show page. A tropical paradise, a shocking death, and the last days of a hidden empire. Shootings are not unusual in Belize. Shootings of cops are... When a wealthy woman married to one of the most powerful families in Belize is found on a pier late at night next to a body, it becomes the country's biggest news story in a generation. This show is coming from Campside Media. Episode one should be dropping soon. And here's why I'm excited about it. I love stories that take place outside of the U.S. And you get this micro crime story mixed in with a macro criminal culture and history of that region. Plus, it's freezing here in Portland, Maine right now. So I can't wait to take an audio vacation to Belize when tuning in to White Devil. At the number two spot, we have Carrie Jade Does Not Exist. Here's a reminder from the show page. Carrie Jade Does Not Exist is the story of how one woman who took on over six different identities infiltrated the lives of vulnerable people and lied her way into gaining their trust. This six-part series hosted by Sue Perkins and journalist Katherine Dankinson will tell the story of how Carrie built up a picture-perfect persona until she finally got tangled up in her very own web of lies. I took a little break but finally finished this one up, and it was a strong finish. The story went in places I was not expecting. This wasn't a typical run-of-the-mill scammer story we've all grown so accustomed to. Also an example of an excellent show to binge all at once with Carrie Jade does not exist. And at the number one spot, we have Cover Up Body Brokers. Here's a synopsis from the show page. For eight years, Megan Hess ran Sunset Mesa Funeral Home in the small town of Montrose, Colorado. She promised clients discounts on normally expensive cremations, a seeming kindness in a town where many are poor. But in the back of the funeral home, Megan's elderly mother, Shirley, was actually dismembering the dead. And then Megan was selling the body parts, heads, torsos, and legs, to companies that claim to do medical research. Oh, you guys, you guys, you guys, you need to listen to this one. Even if it's just the first episode, oh my God, I can't believe this is an industry and how many victims have unknowingly been affected by this. Lots of crime stories are shocking, but cover-up body brokers has me officially shooketh. 
now for my miss of the week. We have my fugitive dad. Here's a rundown from the show page. Ashley's dad was her favorite person in the world. He drove fast cars and sold them for a living. He was a scratch golfer and the love of her mom's life. Ashley thought she knew him better than anyone. But at 38, she found out he wasn't who he said he was. Inspired by his favorite movie, The Thomas Crown Affair, he had pulled off a robbery in Cleveland and then disappeared. It turns out he evaded the authorities for half a century, living in their sleepy Massachusetts town. Yeah, again, I was in that dreaded podcast rut, so I decided to catch back up on my fugitive dad. But I quickly discovered it fell into that category of an awesome premise, awesome first episode. But the whole thing could have been covered in like two episodes. Instead, they dragged it out over six. But unlike Million Dollar Lover, you still had to actively listen to this one or you'd miss out on major plot points. I've got no more use for this one. It turned out to be a total deadbeat of a show, so I'm dragging my fugitive dad down my podcast queue trapdoor. Find out next week if Body Brokers will remain in the number one spot as the show continues or if a new pod will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue trapdoor. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.